This is a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, starting with verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to their descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message was my preaching. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, we find ourselves in the middle and headed towards the end of the season of Epiphany, this season of light, of overturning, of surprise. As we move towards Lent, which we'll talk about later, but um, as we head towards the season of Lent, one, one of the things I love about the church calendar is not only is that there are nice kind of seasons that have different emphases, but that the way the seasons kind of blend together. So even as, like, as we're in the season of Christmas, it points us to Epiphany. And then as we kind of get towards the season of Epif- the end of the season of Epiphany, it points us kind of towards Lent. And then even the end of Lent, we get this sense towards the Passion Week and, you know, on and on and on. And so we start to see not only that this call or this light goes out to all people, but that this light is also cross-shaped. We begin to see the outlines of the cross in our readings and in what we see. So in this season, we're reminded God always moves outward and God's movement is always based on his self-giving love. So in our Isaiah reading, Isaiah tells us that God's people have been rebellious and the prophet is told by God to call this out, to identify this behavior boldly. It says with a full throat, like call them out for their rebellion. But then it's a little bit confusing because it says, so we're kind of left with this question, like why are they rebellious? What are they doing? And it says that God's people seek him daily. They seem eager to know his ways. They fast, they humble themselves. And all of that seems like good stuff, right? Good news. Isn't this what we want from the people of God? Why does it say that God's people are in rebellion? Well, as the situation unfolds, we learn that the people are concerned because God does not see their fasting. It's that he's not paying attention, it seems like, to how they humble or the actual word is afflict themselves. They're trying to get his attention, but he doesn't seem to recognize them. And then the bitter truth hits us in this reading. Even as they're doing these seemingly good and pious rituals, they're forsaking the commands of God. The word commands sometimes is translated justice or order. God's people are doing these pious things, but they're doing them in order to get something from God. They see God as transactional in this way. In a few weeks, as we enter the season of Lent, we see this is traditionally a season of fasting. The way that we approach it around here is we encourage you to think about fasting, if it makes sense for you, that there's something in your life that you choose, okay, I'm choosing to give this up, but it's out of acknowledgement that, gosh, even as much as I want that thing, (laughs) that I want God more. It's making space for God. It's this sense of repentance, of acknowledging that, okay, I'm not dependent on those things. I'm dependent on God. But we always emphasize this. It's never required of the Christian. You don't have to fast anything. It's not something you must do. And we don't do it in order to get anything from God. It's formational. It's not transactional. 
it's important that we know the purpose of fasting. We do not fast or do any religious rituals in order to manipulate God. Fasting is about repentance. It's about acknowledging God as our source rather than these things. In fact, it's interesting. There's only one time in the Bible where fasting is commanded. One time. And only a few times where it's urged, okay? Fasting, every time it's mentioned, is connected with repentance and sorrow. It's always God's people acknowledge that there's something that they've done wrong or something they're too dependent on, or it's out of a a sorrow or a grief or a loss. But for some reason, and we see this throughout church history, but I definitely think that we see it in our lives or in our modern world today, there's a temptation for Christians to use fasting as a way to get something from God. But when we treat any religious ritual this way, our worship is more pagan than it is Christian. Isaiah says, when God's people fast, they do what they want and they exploit their workers. They only fast to quarrel and fight and strike with wicked fists. In other words, they feel close to God. Their fasting makes them feel close to God, but they're far from him. Now, some of the language that he uses here might be hyperbolic in order to make a point that he's saying that fasting is about repentance, but they're not truly repenting because their behavior is not changing. Therefore, their fasting is nothing. This kind of exploitation of workers and oppression of the working class can be found in just about every society throughout history, including in 21st century America today. So God says this, he says, do you think this is the kind of fast I want? When you take one day to afflict yourselves and you wear sackcloth and ashes? No, the kind of fasting God has chosen is always others focused. It loosens the chains of injustice. It unties the cords of the yoke of those who are oppressed. That's the kind of true fasting God looks for. The kind of fasting that God chooses is for the purpose of sharing food with the hungry, providing shelter to the poor and the wanderer and clothing the naked. He also says, if you believe you're somehow better than those people you're oppressing, let me remind you, they're your family. You're the same flesh and blood You're made of the same stuff as them. The great theologian Augustine asked, okay, what are we actually doing when we try to manipulate God, but yet we don't live how God requires? Says this, what if your flesh obeys you and you do not obey God? Are you condemned by your own flesh when it submits to you? Doesn't it bear witness against you precisely by submitting to you? Okay, so what he's saying is, You can get your body to obey you. That's fine. You can be an aesthetic. You can get your body to obey what you say that it's going to be. That's fine. But are you actually submitting to God? Because if not, your fasting can actually be evil because your body's submitting to you, but you're evil or you're empty. Likewise, Jerome, another church uh, father, said that you might as well not fast at all if you think you're better than other people because of it. So he says, quote, if you fasted two or three days, don't think yourself better than others who do not fast. (laughs) Listen to this. I love this. You fast and are angry. The other eats and wears a smiling face. You work off your irritation and hunger in quarrels. (laughs) He uses food in moderation and gives God thanks. I love that. 
because I get cranky if I fast sometimes, right? <laughs> but no, but he says, so some of y'all shouldn't fast because you can't live morally while you're doing it. You can't live rightly. Okay, so of course, God is not against fasting. Fasting and submission to God and repentance is a good thing. But God says when Israel abstains from food, they ought to share that food with those who don't have food. They ought to care for their workers, to live out justice in their midst, and that reflects true repentance. This is consistent with our reading from last week. In Micah 6, God tells the people, you don't need to provide a dramatic extreme sacrifice. That's not what God desires. Rather, they need to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. So you want to please God? It's not about dramatic sacrifice. Love your neighbor. Why is loving your neighbor so important? Because God loves your neighbor. God loves the world and does so freely. And if you want to be close to the heart of God, that's where God's heart is. I love Martin Luther, you know, and he's got an interesting track record. There's some things of his that I wouldn't quote. But, but one of the things that he says that is so powerful is he said, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. I love that. Like there's a purpose for good works. From the practice of loving others, it says, light breaks forth, healing appears. The people live out God's righteousness, God's rightness, and God's beauty will shine. From that place, God will hear the cries of his people and answer them. So in ancient paganism, if you worshiped a pagan god, sacrifice was offered as an effort to get from the gods what you desired. The goal was protection from enemies. So if I sacrifice to the right God, I'll get protection from my enemies. Economic or agricultural prosperity or fertility. Those were the kind of the three main things you would ask the gods for, and you'd try to make an appropriate sacrifice for those things. So to offer a sacrifice, in a sense, was to take matters into your own hands, to say, I can fix this by appeasing the gods. It was transactional. But that's not the way the one true God operates. He's not transactional. It's about trust and about relationship. Human beings are not called to coerce him, but to live in light of his sovereignty. When God's people attempt to manipulate God through pious deeds, it doesn't work because God cannot be manipulated. But God is with the poor and the sick and the hurting and the lowly, those who are fully dependent on God for their needs. When you're with them, God says, he hears you. This is certainly embodied in the life of Jesus, who spends much of his time in ministry with and on behalf of those in need. Matthew 25, 40 says it explicitly, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. I think so much of what we hear from this Old Testament reading is the reminder we're not the primary agent of the world and in the world. We are dependent on grace. And when we grasp that reality, it's not up to us to make some dramatic transactional sacrifice. But when we grasp the reality that God is at work in the world, it puts us in the right place and posture with those in need, and we can give freely. In our reading, our Corinthians reading today, um, this is a quick review from last week. Last week, we heard Paul's words to the church at Corinth about the foolishness of the cross in contrast to the worldly wisdom. There was this group among the Corinthians that Paul is speaking of that uh, we might call wisdom chasers. 
basically they're looking, they're searching for this new kind of revelation, this new kind of wisdom, the newest and most powerful thing, so they can say they're part of the in-group because they have the newest thing. He says that this foolishness, the foolishness of the cross, is illustrated by the fact that a lot of this stuff, this kind of ear-tickling wisdom, he doesn't have, and they in the church don't actually have it. And then he says, not only that, most of you are not from noble birth, so you don't even have a lineage that's really powerful or dramatic. You can't boast in your wisdom, and you can't boast in your lineage. This week, Paul says, the same can be true of me. He says, I'm not a dazzling preacher who has any of this higher knowledge. All I have is the testimony about God. So in a world searching for the latest new knowledge, the current revelations, Paul says the good news is simple. Christ was crucified. Jesus is the key to the mysteries of the universe, and there's nothing more or less than him. And in him, God has changed everything. God has ushered in a new world, and that means the ways of the old world don't make sense. God does not choose to work in the same ways that are seen as strong or wise to the world. God is not dependent on skilled preachers. We say, praise the Lord. It is only the Spirit's power which makes the good news produce fruit. And then Paul says that's the same of your faith. So your faith does not come about by anything else other than God's power. The central focus for Paul is what God has done, not what we do for God. Think about Paul's day, and then I think about our day. One of the, there's so many gaps historically and all that stuff, but, but one of the things I do think there is in common is that we live in a world today obsessed with image. What's the newest and latest image? How do I curate my image in such a way that I'm liked or approved of or viral or whatever it is? So we spend so much time and attention in our world curating our image and our personal brand. I was, I'm reminded of a trend from a few years ago um, where on social media, I mean, I say a few years ago because I'm always behind on the trends, and so, but there was this trend a few years ago where people would post four versions of themselves in picture form, and the versions were labeled LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Tinder. Do you remember this? Am I, no, no one remembers this. Great, this is going to be wonderful. Um, so basically the idea is, Okay, we've got one. So the idea was LinkedIn is your professional photo. So look professional. Instagram is like artsy, you know, so everybody's like, you know, real like cool looking. Facebook is friendly. These are my friends, right? And Tinder was sexy. So you put four different versions of yourselves. Now, as the trend continued, I remember, it expanded to absurdity, okay? So people would put their own pictures, but then it's cartoon characters, you know, four different pictures, or it's historical figures, or it's in my circles, it was theologians, right? <laughs> like the four different pictures as they would post in these different ones. But this silly thing, I think, does reveal something. We project different images for different purposes, don't we? But, and, and that's not inherently wrong, I want to be careful here, but we must be aware of our projections. Because so often, projection is not reality. In fact, it may be a perversion of reality. But when we devote our lives to this perversion, it becomes idolatry. Another way to say this is when we're so focused on what we look like to everyone else, we often lose focus of the truth, and that can become our God, our own projections. But truth cuts through the projections. 
the false realities. The ultimate truth is Christ and who we are in him. So I think this raises the question, like what are the false things that are running our lives? So many of us have ways that we define ourselves. You know, like do we define ourselves by our, like the Corinthians, by our knowledge, education, by fame, by power, by our ability to acquire certain things that define the good life or the American dream? If that's how we define ourselves, our life is often lived incongruous with the gospel. But the good news, and this is good news, is that worldly wisdom and power don't have the final word. They seem like they run the show today, but they don't have the final word. In the world system, the old world system, those who, who have power only just get more of it, right? That just is how it works. We're promised so many things as the key to the good life, and that's we're told is the final end of our lives. The way of Christ is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense to the world, but it actually is a deeper wisdom because Christ has laid down his life for us. He suffered a humiliating death, stepping into the darkest part of the human experience, revealing that even death itself is not the end. I think also the fact that Christ died and died a humiliating death is a reminder to us that there is no place too dark for God. There's nothing you could suffer or experience that we go, well, God wants nothing to do with that, right? No, he stepped into that darkest place and is with you and with me in those places. Foolishness to the world, yes, but the truest wisdom. I think one of the things Paul's saying is the story is straightforward. Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, it's a straightforward story, but it takes our entire lives to explore and to really live into this story. And then our gospel reading today continues with the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we heard the Beatitudes. Jesus proclaims that in his kingdom, the poor and the mourning and the meek and the merciful and those who long for justice are blessed. The way of Jesus is a revolution, but it's a rooted revolution The Sermon on the Mount serves as a challenge to Israel in the first century and to his people today. Be who you are called to be. God's people are the salt of the earth, which is an interesting image. What does salt do? It does a few things. First, it provides flavoring. The very basic seasonings in every kitchen are what? Salt and pepper. Jesus says that his people are flavor to the world. Give the world its zest and its gusto. But second, salt is a preservative. So in Jesus' time, long before we had any modern refrigeration, meat was coated in salt so that it would last longer. The community which has been called around Jesus, the church, is called to preserve the world, to keep the world fresh. We live in a broken world that is prone to decay and sin leads us further into rot. But Jesus is calling Israel to be who they have been called to be in the midst of the consistent temptation to believe other stories about themselves in the world, to become obsessed with the power and politics of the day, to behave just like everyone else. At the time of Jesus, many of Israel's representatives were busy thinking about their positions 
and their squabbles and taking up arms to fight their enemies. It was about their nationalist politics and they had forgotten their flavor and their ability to keep the world from rot. Well, the church is always called to pull the world back into freshness, its ripeness, its place of origin, to remind the world of who they're called to be, that they're loved by God, that they've been created in God's image, that God has rescued them in Christ. But it's important to say, when I say kind of remind the world of where it's called to be, of its origin, of preserve the world, that doesn't mean going backwards to a better time in history. This idea, there's this idea in so many different circles of a golden age when, oh, if we could just get back to, and for different people it's a different time frames, but if we could just get back to this era when everything was better, well, that's a myth. (laughs) Every era throughout history has had sin and brokenness in it. The church is not always called to call people backwards. In some way, the church is called to call people forwards, not towards something like human progress, but towards God's new world, that God is active and moving in the world, and we ought to listen for his voice. So in addition to salt, then, Jesus employs another metaphor. God has called his people to be the light of the world. I don't know if you grew up singing. I grew up singing the old song, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And until recently, I, I just thought it's just a children's song. Somebody made it up for kids. Uh, nobody knows the song's origin, but, but it came into our common kind of imagination in the 1950s and 1960s as one of the freedom songs of the civil rights movement. Bernice Johnson Reagan, who's a scholar of the history of the civil rights movement, said this song was so important in, this, in the movement for a couple different reasons. First, it was an I song instead of a we song. A lot of the songs of the movement were we songs. We shall overcome is an example of that. But I songs were just as important because when you're in the middle of a protest at a lunch counter or on a bus or even in jail, she says the temptation would be to hide, to give in to a culture of fear. But when you sing, I'm going to let it shine, you're saying, I'm in this. I'm putting aside fear and I'm showing that I'm here and I've showed up to let my light shine. She also says, secondly, in a culture where many in the black community were told to simply blend in, that their best course of action was not to speak up, but to just fit in and blend in. This song says, no, I'm letting my light shine. I'm not hiding it under a bushel. I'm letting it, I'm standing for truth. I'm standing for justice and for love and equality, and I'm letting my light shine. Well, God's people have always been called to be light-shining people. Israel's purpose was to be a light to all nations. That's the story. What does light do? Well, light not only exposes what's there, reveals what's there, it directs. It gives people who are blundering around in the dark the opportunity to see where they're going. The difficult truth was that God's light bearers throughout history often have become part of the darkness. So this is Jesus' warning to first century Israel. You are supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world. You're supposed to be a city on a hill. And what we see unfold is we see Jesus begins to call a community around himself, a new community that lives out this mission. 
by the formation of their character, by the way they live, they are assigned to the nations of the world that their God is God indeed and that they should worship him. Jesus is challenging the ways that many in Israel had used ritual behaviors to separate themselves from others, insiders from outsiders. But it's also important, Jesus in this passage we see doesn't do away with the Jewish law. No, in fact, what's striking about these verses and what's a bit confusing to some of us is the way that he actually takes it up a notch. He says, your righteousness should be greater than the Pharisees. What? But what we notice is much like the prophet Isaiah that we read, Jesus is not interested in just behavior for behavior's sake. He is interested in a whole person transformed in this new kingdom. Now, you'll notice this in your own life, okay? That true, lasting change in your behavior or in your life or how you live doesn't come from guilt or shame, from trying to be better or fit a certain social mold. It doesn't come through white-knuckling. You may have heard this phrase, a white-knuckle alcoholic. My dad has used this in therapy before, but this is this idea of somebody that just through sheer willpower thinks that they're going to become sober. No, it doesn't work. It it comes from an inner change, a change at the core. When we become so compelled by the love and grace of God and his invitation to be part of this kingdom and we're transformed, only then will we see true, lasting behavioral change. But this is not just true internally with us. This is true with everybody we encounter. So, like, we'll never bring about change in a friend or a neighbor or a family member through shaming. It will only happen through light. So that's why when this stereotypical, you know, mother or mother-in-law uses passive-aggressive comments to try to change their kid's behavior, that you just want to say to them, it just isn't going to work. That person is not going to change through those kind of comments or through shame or through guilt. Jesus' command about the law are always outward-focused, and they lead to those who are far away, but it's always a message of mercy and love. And that's how the law was intended in the first place, to be a light in the darkness. Jesus reveals this not only in what he says, but what he does. This is where things sometimes in Christianity get a little complicated because we create an unhelpful dualism in the life of Jesus. You may have heard some people say, well, really, all we need is the cross. You know, Jesus died for me, saved my soul, and I don't need anything else. And maybe his teachings were nice, there were moral guidelines for Christians, but really all I need is the salvation of my soul through the cross and resurrection. Still, there are others in other forms of Christianity that talk about the revolutionary nature of Jesus' teaching, how amazing his teaching was, and really the Sermon on the Mount is really the center of everything, and that's it, and then kind of underemphasize his death and resurrection. But Jesus' teaching and living always go together. Jesus taught us the kingdom, and then he lived the kingdom. So think about this. Jesus turned the other cheek. He taught us to turn the other cheek, and then he really did, okay? He turned the other cheek. He taught us to love our enemies, and then he loved his. He taught us the story of the prodigal son, and then he stood in solidarity with the prodigals of the world. And here, 
he teaches his community around him to be salt and light. And that's exactly what he does. He is salt. And that he shows a broken world, the political and religious structures of the day, what true love really looks like. He is the preservative, pointing backwards to who they're called to be, but also forward to what the world is becoming. He is the light in that he exposed violence and hatred and the malice of our world, taking all of our sin upon himself and dying for us and rising again, showing that he has conquered that very sin. And he has become the city on the hill, a beacon of light drawing all people to himself. Because of his light, we're drawn in. Because of this light, we're invited into the kingdom of God, a new way of being in the world. All of these things that Jesus says about us are true because this is who Jesus is first. This light is always outward pointing. It says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, or the translation we read says bushel basket, which I've never used that term at all in my entire life, but put it under a bowl, right? Instead, they put it on his stand and use light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I remember years ago, uh, Bishop Ed told me, I was uh, in, in a time where I was talking to you guys or talking to the church about um, telling our friends and neighbors about Jesus and about evangelism. All that's good and appropriate. But he just said, hey, just remember that the character of the, your community, the character of your people is always the best evangelism, that it always has a drawing effect when we live as transformed people of salt and light in the world. That's really what draws people to the light. As Christians walk with Jesus, we will find ourselves where Jesus is, with the poor and the marginalized. It's like the prophet Micah said, fasting and worship that does not lead to a different way of treating the marginalized in our midst is useless. Now, it's possible to romanticize work among the marginalized. I know you guys know this. We often expect when we first serve in a certain capacity, whether it's with room in the inn or whether you, you know, serve somewhere in the world, go, this is going to be exciting and it's going to be rewarding. And sometimes it is. <laughs> and sometimes it just means putting in the work. Sometimes it may feel good. Other times it's just cleaning up, doing dishes, serving. But when we are with the marginalized, it's where God is. This is also why I think it's so terrible when Christians take public stances that are e either are or are perceived to be against those in marginalized positions. Christianity doesn't operate well from a place of privilege. We are at our best when we're with hurting people, those who have been rejected. This light also means, so we've got that element, and then this light also means you're going to notice people drawn to conversations about faith because of what is happening in you. Many of you know this story already, but for many years, several years, I worked out of a co-working space um, here in Nashville. And I had people who would just stop completely, no initiative of mine, but people who would stop by my office with questions about faith. Again, I didn't try to get their attention. I didn't try to do anything. One, way, one day, a woman stopped by and said, um, I, I'm sorry to do this, but you just seem normal which is a great compliment. You just seem normal and, uh, and nice. And she said, and you have a lot of books. 
So I thought maybe I could ask you some questions about faith. It didn't say anything. It didn't, didn't do anything. It was I had a lot of books and I was normal. <laughs> we are not called. Now, when she says I have questions, we're not called to be the people with answers. But our present mat- presence matters. The way that we're salt and the way that we're light matters. Notice when it says, let your light shine. By God's initiative, we are salt and light in a city on a hill. And then finally, there's a third level. I'm almost done here. The light shines through in how we treat one another within the church, okay? There's no community on the planet like the church. We are a community of different backgrounds and ethnicities, nationalities and perspectives, all bound together by the good news of Jesus. When we live by the Spirit and towards one another, not against one another, light shines in the world. The kingdom of God is always focused outwards. So how we treat those who find themselves outside, both individually and systemically, matters. One last caution is with readings like the ones we have today, there can be a temptation towards moralism. Where we read them and we go, okay, the call today is go and be better. Just go and do better stuff, right? Like that often is what we hear in the church. Um, Care for the poor better and more. Let your light shine more or work really, really hard at being salt and light. But rarely do those tactics work when it comes to creating real and lasting change. The call to do better doesn't really do it. The commands of scripture are different. They're rooted in memory. This is what God has done. And this is your identity in him. And that is what leads towards transformation. So today, may we be reminded of who we are. Salt shaken on the world to flavor and preserve. Reminding the world of its source and pointing the world to what God is doing. Light revealing sin and brokenness as Christ's death revealed the brokenness of our world and to light the way. This happens not by way of earthly power, by image curation, or by flashy rhetoric. We humbly trust that God is doing what God does. Light is shining through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. This light reveals itself in our good deeds, and it always leads to praise. Amen.